It's an honor to stand here this morning. It's been nice to have a break from preaching, but preachers like to preach. That's what we're called to do. And so it just gave me great joy to have this opportunity. So thank you for that. I've enjoyed listening to some good preaching, being home. Enjoyed that message this morning from Brother Eric. Not a whole lot to add, but I'll try. Uh, Probably one of my most precious memories of an Easter Sunday, of an Easter sunrise. I always loved the sunrise services growing up as a child, going out before dark and meeting and singing and reading about the resurrection of our Lord at the dawning of the day. I just always enjoyed that. And when this church was planted in the beginning, we didn't do that initially for a few years. And I remember communicating that I wish we'd do a sunrise service. And we began to do that, and they've been special ever since. But one of my fondest memories was a few years ago, 2015, I had the great privilege with my wife Jamie of being in Jerusalem on Easter morning. And we decided that what we would do, we were staying in a little, we were renting out a little condominium in, uh, in West Jerusalem, And we decided what we'd do is we'd get up before dawn and we'd walk across the old city, more or less from where Peter and John would have been staying all the way over to the garden tomb just outside the Damascus Gate in that Muslim neighborhood. And we had seen an advertisement that there was going to be a worship service there at the garden tomb and that everyone was invited. And we thought, well, let's get up and let's walk across Jerusalem and at least pretend like we're retracing the steps of Peter and John when Mary Magdalene came to find them, and then we'll end up at the garden tomb, and we'll get to have a sunrise service right there. And that was a blessed time. And it amazed me to show up, and the line was backed all the way out into the main street of people just wanting to get in. There was barely standing room. You couldn't even get close to the tomb. And just to hear the voices of Jews and Gentiles alike lifting up the name of Jesus Christ and to hear His name and His resurrection proclaimed there louder than even the Muslim call to prayer in that neighborhood. Those were special moments that I'll never forget. And from that place, we walked back through the bustling city of Jerusalem out the the Dung Gate and... I had the privilege of doing some open-air preaching that day. And we preached and witnessed to folks all day, and it culminated that night on the rooftops of the old city in a long conversation with a Jewish young man about the Messiah. That was a special day. But one thing I always appreciated that stood out to me about the garden tomb there in Jerusalem, not just the empty rich man's tomb, not just the evidence going back to the second century that early Christians associated that with the place of our Lord. Not just that Golgotha, the cliff that looks like a skull above an Arab bus station is right, you know, just out of, just right around the corner. Not that it's a, a refuge where you can go and find quiet in a bustling city, but I always appreciated this mosaic sign that you see when you walk in there. And it's not a passage from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's not a report of the angel or a report of Mary Magdalene. Of all places, it comes from the introduction of one of Paul's epistles. And I always found this to be a most powerful 
passage that greets you when you walk into the garden tomb. It says, Jesus Christ declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead. And what that always shouted to me was that the resurrection of our Lord is not just a historical event that took place at one moment in time. It came, it happened, it passed by, and then we move on to something else. It's not just an event that's been forgotten. It's not just a blip on a screen or a point in time. It is a happening. It is a, it, it, it is a, a, a demonstration of the power of God that holds all of human history captive. And there's a much bigger picture. There's a much bigger picture than that one day, that, that Feast of Firstfruits in A.D. 30, when our Lord rose from the dead. I want to look briefly at, at this message from, uh, from Paul in Romans chapter 1 as a, as a means of introduction and read it in its greater context. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God which He had promised afore by His prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name. How do we turn that on? Okay, I knew that was coming. And then verse 6. Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. So here by way of introduction, Paul speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that declared him to be what he claimed to be, the Son of God. But that resurrection as presented here is far bigger than an event that happened at a moment in time. It's coupled here with words like called, apostles, prophets, holy scriptures, the seed of David, the spirit of holiness, grace and apostleship, obedience to the faith among all nations and among whom are ye. The called of Jesus Christ. What God foreordained and predestined from the foundation of the world is that His Son, His Messiah, would sit on His throne as the King and Messiah. That His Son, His Messiah, would make Himself an offering for sin. And that His Son, by virtue of His death, burial, and resurrection, would have unto Himself, would have reserved unto Himself a people who also would be called Jews and Gentiles. It was preordained from the foundation of the world that the Son would not just rise from the dead, but that God would give Him a people. And that people would be called. And that that resurrection would profoundly affect the lives of those people. So that a message and an event wouldn't die. It would spread and continue and continue and continue as it does today. 
There's a much bigger picture to the resurrection than an Easter sunrise, an Easter morning on the first day of the week. I'm not going to be going primarily today in this message to the Gospels, to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I don't want to zero in on the dawning of a day or a stone rolled away, soldiers scared to death, women with spices, a garden, or even men in shining garments. I want to go where the apostles went when they first preached the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to go where they went. They went to those Old Testament scriptures. They went to the writings, to the Psalms, and declared what had been written before. So today, I want to go to the Psalms and the Proverbs. And I want to see what God's Word has to say about this bigger picture of the resurrection. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 2. In the Hebrew Bible, the third section of the Hebrew canon, you have the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the writings. And that ketubim, the Psalms, includes the Psalms and the Proverbs. And it includes several other books as well. Job, Ruth, the Chronicles. So when I say we're going to the Psalms and then I say we're going to Psalms and Proverbs, I'm speaking correctly. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. When wisdom entereth into thine heart and knowledge is pleasant unto thy soul, discretion shall preserve thee understanding shall keep thee. The writings have lots to say about knowledge and about wisdom. And we often understand that. We cite the passages about the beginnings of fear. I mean, the beginnings of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. But these writings also have something to say about discretion and understanding. Something that's lacking in the church today. Knowledge is the accumulation of facts. Anyone can gain knowledge. You don't need a college degree. In fact, all you need is an iPad or laptop computer library card and some internet access, and you can have access to all the knowledge you could get in a college for a whole lot less money. The accumulation of facts, truths, what is right or wrong, that is knowledge. Wisdom is the application of knowledge to one's own life and actions. Wisdom is how you use knowledge in your own life and experience. The Bible is very clear that the beginning of both knowledge and wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Paul doesn't call the fear of the Lord an awe or a reverence. He calls it a terror. The beginning of wisdom and knowledge is the fear of the Lord. But there's something else that goes beyond wisdom and knowledge. We're told here that it's only when wisdom enters your heart, when you learn to apply knowledge, and it's when knowledge is actually pleasant to your soul, not a burden, as it is for many. It's only then, when you have wisdom and knowledge, that discretion can preserve you, and understanding can keep you. I love how this King James Bible defines itself. 
If you don't know what a word means, discretion shall preserve thee, well, what does that mean? Just keep reading. Because the definition is often right there in the next phrase. Discretion shall preserve thee, understanding shall keep thee. What is discretion? It's understanding. And it goes beyond your own life and experience. Discretion is understanding the bigger picture. Beyond your own sphere of influence. It's the opposite of what drives social media. It's the opposite of the typical Facebook post. It's the opposite of self-absorption. Discretion sees your life as part of a much bigger picture and your importance far less important than you are wont to think. And it's discretion, seeing the bigger picture that will preserve us and protect us. I'll give you an example. Knowledge would say, masks don't work. Trying to keep a little tiny virus particle out with a cloth mask is like trying to keep mosquitoes out of your yard with a chain link fence. Chain link fence. I mean, you can gather knowledge and come up with those conclusions. Wisdom, however, would be taking that knowledge and applying it. Okay, I know by knowledge that masks don't work and they aren't going to make any difference where COVID-19 is concerned. And I know that the Bible says if I can't do something out of faith, that it's sin. So wisdom takes that knowledge about masks and in and, and, and the Scripture's declaration in Romans 14 puts it together and applies it to my own life and says, you know what? I can't wear that mask in faith, so I'm not going to wear it. And I don't care what the governor says. I don't care what my dentist says. I'll find another one. I, don't, I just won't fly on an airplane. That's wisdom. But discretion goes beyond that. It goes beyond me and it says, hey, you know what? There's a bigger picture to all this mask stuff, all this COVID stuff, all this vaccine stuff. There's a bigger picture to it. There's a spiritual element whereby the spirit of Antichrist is deceiving both the right and the left. is deceiving the world, the lost and the church. There's a bigger picture. And discretion is what makes us able to see that. Discretion is seeing the spiritual behind the physical. Seeing the bigger picture. And I think we need to apply discretion to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just knowledge of it. Jesus rose from the grave. He is risen. Not just wisdom. Because Christ is risen, I can be risen indeed one day. But discretion. There's a great big picture that culminates in something far more wonderful, far more powerful than just the resurrection. Because that was not, is not, and will not be the end of the matter. One who has discretion biblically is, here's an old word for you, good old King James word that's really powerful, circumspect. One who is circumspect looks all around him versus introspection. Introspection is looking within. Retrospection is looking back. Circumspection is looking at the big picture all around. When God gave the law to Israel in the book of Exodus, He, he said to the people through Moses, Exodus 23, 13, In all things that I have said, be 
circumspect. Look at the bigger picture. Why am I giving you these statutes and judgments that tell you when homosexuality is found in your nation, you are to stamp it out. It is to be punished with capital punishment. Why am I telling you that bestiality and trannyism should be punished with capital punishment. Why am I telling you to stamp these things out of your nation? Because there's a bigger picture. Because if you do not, the land will vomit you out just like it vomited out the Canaanites before you. There's a bigger picture. Be circumspect. I'm not going to stand here and apologize for one ounce of God's law in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. If we had discretion, we would follow the example of Israel in our government today. You want to fix this grooming of children in the schools in this country? Then do what God, then the government needs to do what God told Israel to do. You want to get rid of the groomers? There's a way to do it. God said be circumspect in all things. But we ain't even got the guts to talk about it. Ephesians 5. We're to walk circumspectly. Verses 15 and 16. Be wise, not as fools, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Discretion is circumspection. Circumspection involves redeeming the time. Do we redeem the time in light of Christ's resurrection? Or do we just go on about our business and we'll talk about it again next year? 1 Chronicles 12 verse 32 shines light on discretion. There were some men in Israel, men of the tribe of Issachar. And they were unique because it says of them that they had understanding of the times. They had discretion to know what Israel ought to do. Discretion goes beyond wisdom. Wisdom says what I ought to do. Discretion says what we ought to do. Understanding of the times. Do we have that here in America? Do we have it here in the church? It's lacking. Psalm 28, the psalmist shows discretion even in his prayer. And the proof is a call for help for himself turns out to be a prayer for his people and his nation. Circumspection. Discretion. That's what guards us. That's what protects us. And we need discretion and circumspection where the resurrection of our Lord is concerned. Today in America's churches, you know, this is one of the two Sundays on the calendar when there's more people in church in America than there is any other Sunday. Christmas and Easter. I don't know why half of these folks feel like they need to get up on Christmas morning or or a, a Christmas Eve service or on Easter morning and go to church. I don't know what they think it's getting them. Because it doesn't score points with God. There are churches in America today that will be full of people dressed nicely who think they're doing God a favor on Easter morning and yet the pastor won't even talk about the resurrection beyond the passing reference to a historical fact. There's a lot of knowledge in our churches, knowledge of Christ's resurrection. It's going to be rehashed ad nauseum today. There's little wisdom, little application to our own lives because the church lives in fear. So they're obviously not applying the knowledge of Christ's resurrection to their life. And there's almost no discretion. Our guard is down in the churches here in America. And it's been down for a long time. 
I'm constantly telling my students in the dojo when we spar, don't let your guard down. Because when the guard goes down, the face gets pummeled. And that's where we are today. We've been pummeled by the world. Our guard is down. No discretion. And that's why we've fallen for all the lies. That's why we fail for the 2020 fake election. That's why we fall for propaganda about January 6th. Propaganda about Russia and the Ukraine. We'll look at other men and we'll call them evil and we can't even see the evil in our own nation. Our guard is down. The church has no discretion. We are silent witnesses to evil deeds. And if you're looking at Christ's resurrection circumspectly, you can't be a silent witness to evil deeds. Because the disciples and the apostles weren't silent witnesses. You know, I look at all this stuff that Christians have fallen for. And we're all guilty. I'm guilty. We fall, we fell for the Hillsong ministry and this type of idea that that uh, godliness equals singing worship songs. We've fallen for the lies of the Republican Party. Some of us have even deceived ourselves into thinking that God's an American and that He's a Republican. (laughs) We've fallen for the notion that revival equals singing worship songs with eyes closed and hands raised. And if we'll repeat the chorus enough times, then the Holy Spirit will come upon us. We've fallen for the the lies without discretion that singing equals spiritual. And that being nice to wicked men while constantly criticizing our brethren in Christ makes us loving. Mm -hmm. We've fallen for ecumenism. This idea that if we all come together and just forget about differences in doctrine, it's not important, then we'll have revival. We've made the great error that tolerance equals love when the resurrected Lord Himself rebuked the church at Pergamos for that very thing. There are so few who walk circumspect in the light of our Lord's resurrection. No eyes to see. No mind to teach the bigger picture. It's like we're all a bunch of iPhones stuck In photo mode. You know, Bethany had an iPhone for years she inherited from me. And I'm surprised that old 7 Plus lasted as long as it did. But it got to the place where it was stuck in portrait mode. And so if you tried to take pictures, there were things that were blurred on the outside. And there was no way you could get out of it. That's the way we are. You see, knowledge is like the normal wide-angle lens on an iPhone. That's what knowledge is. It's photo mode. Wisdom is like the telephoto lens or the portrait mode. It zooms in and highlights just like wisdom is applied into one's own life. Discretion is like the ultra-wide or the panoramic mode. And for many of us Christians, we got one or more broken lenses and we're stuck. No discretion. When I read that passage in Romans 1... And when I see that verse outside the the garden tomb there in Jerusalem, it makes it very clear when I consider the words Paul uses by virtue of introduction to the Roman Christians that the resurrection has a bigger picture. 
than Easter morning. Especially that last phrase. Because it's talking to me. And it's talking to you. Those of us who claim the name of the, resurrection, of, of the, of the resurrected Christ. Paul is speaking to us among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. By the resurrection, my friends, we're called. And if we're called, we're called not to sit still, not to be a silent witness, but to be active, to model the very eyewitnesses of our Lord Jesus Christ as they went out and preached, as they're highlighted this morning, with great power. I want to look at the resurrection with discretion. And I want to apply it. And today we're going to go to the Psalms, not in photo mode, not in portrait mode, but we're going to go in pano mode. We're going to put that ultra-wide lens on. That ultra-wide, that point five you see on your iPhone. Turn to Psalm 14. Psalm 14. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord. There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is His refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of His people. Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. Psalm 14 The problem of man. We have a big problem. According to God's word. We have a problem. You know, many Christians will admit this. We'll speak of it in cliches. But we'll live as if it isn't true. And we'll refuse to preach it. For fear of offending our fellow man. Or for upsetting our cash flow. That's why when we talk of revival in our society, when we talk of a work of God, when we talk of seeking the Lord and getting back to the Lord, there's always one word that's missing from those conversations and those messages. Not here, but just listen. There's one word missing. It's the word that's left out that Jesus said time and time again in His preaching that Peter preached there at Pentecost. That's in... At least five of the seven letters to the seven churches, the red letters of Revelation, it's left out, it's avoided when talking about solutions for our church's problems and our nation's problems. Repent. Exactly what this psalm ought to drive us to do. Repent. Verse 1. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. We'll find this twice in the Bible. It also shows up in Psalm 53 verse 1. And when the Bible says something once, that ought to be enough to get your attention. But when it says it twice, we really ought to take heed. Especially 
when what is said or repeated appears real close together. I saw that study in the Scriptures this week in Proverbs 10. In verse 8 and in verse 10, it says the same thing twice. A pratting fool shall fall. If you want to know what a pratting fool is, just turn on the TV and watch the red-headed witch that speaks for the, pre- the fake president. That's a pratting fool. If you want to know what a pratting fool is, if you can stomach it, listen to Dr. Fauci talk. He's a pratting fool. Watch the fake president who turns to shake hands with a ghost because his mind is so warped from his evil doing deeds of years and years and years. That makes your mind, that messes with your mind. He probably was shaking hands with somebody, probably the demon puppet master that pulls his strings. That's a prating fool. You know, the good news is the prating fool will fall. The Bible says it twice. Elsewhere we're told that in, in Proverbs 10, it pops up twice. Violence covereth the mouth of the wicked. The wicked out here saying all this stuff, accusing people of all this stuff, making up all these lies, putting this, putting that, falsely charging the Lord Jesus Christ. One day, the very violence they wish upon the church, upon the Jew, upon the righteous, is going to cover their own mouth. It's going to stop their own mouths. When the Bible says something twice, we ought to take heed. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And we don't even have the guts as Christians to say that anymore. The atheist doesn't have a head problem. He's got a heart problem. We'll agree with it, but many in the church live as if there is no God. So are we any different? Verses 2 and 3, there's none that understands, none none that seeks God. I never did understand the seeker movement in the churches. The seekers. We got to go after the seekers. We got to get them to want to come to church. So we're going to water down the message. We're going to have the praise band and do all the fancy music. Well, the Bible says there's no such thing as a seeker. I'm reminded of what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20. There is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Man is not good. Man is lost in his sins. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. It's kind of like garbage cans. You know, we got an old garbage can at the dojo that one of us takes out every Monday night, and it's apparently been hit by a car because the plastic on the corner is cracked open and it's spread open. There's a giant hole there. We've got another one that's newer and nice. You got all kinds of garbage cans. You got shiny metal ones. You've got disgusting old cracked ones like the one I store pine straw in. You've got fancy gadgets that open up the lids and they close softly. You've got all these garbage cans, but and some are pretty, some are nice, but they all got garbage inside. That's man. The best of men's got garbage inside. He's a garbage can. Do any of us seek God? You know, we wonder why we've got vile individuals. And vile is an understatement when I speak about Joseph Biden, the fake president of the United States, and everybody that surrounds him. And I overheard a conversation in a restaurant the other day talking about the Democrats that and the Democrats this and how bad they are. And this, and we need to elect these Republicans. 
And we wonder why we've got these vile individuals telling us what to do and destroying our country. Well, the Bible tells us exactly why we've got them. It's the problem is not them, it's us. If you flip a page back to Psalm 12, verse 8, we're told that when the vilest of men are exalted, that's when the wicked walk on every side. When the vilest of men are exalted, it means that the wicked are everywhere, all around us. American people are wicked as hell. And that's why we've got politicians who are wicked as hell. Man has a problem. Do any seek God? Paul highlights this psalm in Romans chapter 3. Verses we're familiar with. Do we preach them? What then? Are we better than they? No and no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh out after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. We memorize these verses. We quote them. But we preach and we witness and we live as if they maybe aren't true. All are under sin. And this is in the context of Paul preaching about the perverted, the virtue signaler, the self-righteous Jew who had an advantage, the Gentile who has a conscience from God and yet blasphemes the God of Israel. It's in this context that we are told very clearly all are under sin. Later in chapter 3, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 6.23, and that sin has a wage. The wages of sin is death. We're all under sin. We've got a big problem. How can we view the events of Easter morning without this big picture in mind? Without such discretion? I don't know how we can view the events of Christmas morning without this in mind. But look at the end there of Psalms. 14. It shouts so loudly. Particularly verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. We have a problem. Oh, how we need a Messiah. Oh, how we need a Messiah. This is the cry of the righteous. And it was for centuries before David, after David. That's why the Messiah in the prophet Haggai is referred to as the desire of all nations. We need a Messiah. If you want a commentary on Psalm 14 verse 7, our need for a Messiah. If you want a little commentary, a little expansion on it, you don't need to open up. Matthew Henry, you don't need to open up Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. You don't even need to open up John Gill. Let's just go read Psalm 15. You want the commentary, let's read the next one. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not, he that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent, 
He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Oh, how we need a Messiah. Oh, how we need a perfect Messiah. Who can come to God? Who can dwell with Him? We're told here. We're given 11 moral absolutes. 11 moral excellencies. Not just deeds, but actions produced from holy principles. Regulated by God. Done with the right spirit. The fruits of the spirit. And with the right end in view. Who can come to God? Can we read that and have any confidence in ourselves? Can you read what it says you must have to come to God and have any confidence in yourself? That's not me. Maybe in action from time to time, but certainly not with the right motive and the right spirit. Who can come to God? Who can dwell with Him? Me? You? Do we, do we measure up? Verse 2, it's not just about the actions, it's the motives too. Jesus highlighted that. You've heard that it said don't commit adultery, but if you've looked with lust in your heart, you've already been guilty of adultery. Actions and motives. I think verse 4 is the great apostasy of the American churches. We do the opposite. A righteous man who can come into the presence of God, in his eyes, a vile person is contemned, and those that fear the Lord are honored. Interesting. America does the opposite. We honor the vile and we contemn the righteous. A lot of Christians honor the vile and contemn the righteous. A great apostasy. Now that word contemned is different than the word condemned. I don't know what the modern Bibles say there, but contemned is an interesting word. It means to disdain or to reject. And yet to leave the ultimate end in God's hands. To condemn has an element of utter doom. It consigns the end of the matter. To contemn a vile person is to disdain them, to call them exactly what they are, to warn them, and to leave them in God's hands to deal with them. And we ought to look at the vile running this country and the vile pastoring half of these churches out there, and we ought to have eyes of condemnation. That's what righteousness does. Instead of making excuses for it. Vile, men are contemned in the eyes of the righteous. Homosexuals, trannies, dykes, fags, lesbos, child molesters, pedophiles. LGBTQ is just a code word for pedophile. Always has been. That stuff ought to be contemned in our eyes. If we want to meet the standard of righteousness that God says. Not condemned. Because as long as a man has breath in his body, there's hope for him to have his eyes open. Contemned is something else other. We leave the results up to God. But we do the opposite. We justify the wicked and we mock and ridicule the righteous. All these Christians out here will give the tranny who grooms children... A more of a benefit of a doubt than we'll give our brother and sister in Christ that we've known for years. Shame on us. You can't get into the presence of God living like that. Woe unto those who justify the wicked. Second Chronicles 19, God sent the prophet to righteous King Jehoshaphat after he buddied up with the wicked and said, should we help the ungodly? 
and love those that hate the Lord? And the king was dumbfounded. He didn't have an answer. And the prophet said, you've done this, and that, for that reason God's wrath is upon you. Contend the vile honor of the righteous. That's a mark of moral excellency where we fail. Romans 12, 9 says, Let your love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. Proverbs tells us that he that dissembleth with his lips, that means holding back what you know to be true because you don't want to offend somebody, actually hates the person they're talking to. Don't love them. And those that flatter people actually are hiding seven abominations in their heart. Man, we're guilty. I don't know if you've ever heard the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor and a, and, and, and a, and a philosopher. And he maintained his testimony and spoke out against Hitler and the Nazi regime. He was falsely accused of participating in a plot to execute Adolf Hitler. And he was found guilty and he was hung. But he never compromised his testimony in Jesus Christ. In fact, it's been like 77 years ago, April 9th, he was hung for his crimes. April 9th and then April 30th, not all that long after, is when Hitler, uh, as they say, <laughs> killed himself. Yeah, they say a lot of things that we used to never question. We ought to be questioning now if we've got discretion. But he said what a nation like Germany that had turned its back on God needed more than anything else, wasn't philanthropists and philosophers and uh, 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 all these great intelligent people. What it needed more than anything else was plain, honest, and straightforward men. And there were none. Nobody spoke up when the Jews started burning in the ovens. He did and he paid for it with his life. Plain, honest, straightforward men. Someone that's plain, honest, and straightforward contends the vile and honors those that fear the Lord. So who of us are able to abide in God's tabernacle? By virtue of verse 4, we ain't qualified. It says there at the end of the psalm, He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Moved from where? From the presence of God, His holy tabernacle. I don't read that psalm. It doesn't inspire confidence in me or confidence in my place or my destination in and of it myself. What I come away from that psalm crying is exactly what the psalmist cries at the end of chapter 14. Oh, how we need a Messiah. Not just a man, but a righteous Messiah of moral excellency of moral absolutes, who's worthy to stand in the presence of God the Creator, the Holy God of the universe, because He is exactly what this psalms, the psalm declares righteousness to be. We need a sinless Messiah who can stand in God's presence and live there and make intercession for us. How can we not view the resurrection in light of that great need? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says that Christ, by virtue of His resurrection, liveth ever to make intercession for us. 
Christ is in the tabernacle. That is His ministry now. He dwells in the holy hill of Zion. And because He is righteous, meeting every qualification laid out here through His active obedience, His life and His ministry, He can stand there on our behalf. Hallelujah. What a Savior. He's not a high priest with infirmities like high priest amongst men. He is a son consecrated forevermore. When I read this psalm, it gives me no confidence. It highlights my failure, my falling short. It proves exactly about me what Psalm 14 says about all men. And it only intensifies a yearning for a Messiah. Does it evoke that deep yearning for you? Does it do for us? Do we have that yearning that Job had that he could have a Messiah, an advocate, an intercession, an intercessor to stand between him and God? To plead for him as a man pleads for his friends. Even Buddha understood this great need. He probably never saw the Psalms, never had access to them. He lived five, about 500 years before Christ. And I like to tell this story when I'm preaching in South Asia amongst Hindus and Buddhists. There's a story that says a man came to Buddha and asked him a question. Buddha means teacher or guru. How can we get to God, the creator? And Buddha says, we can't. Between us and, and him is this great sea of despair Sin, the unknown, we can't get to Him. The only way we could get to God is if He sent a great boat that would take us to Him. I find that fascinating because that's exactly what the Messiah is. A boat to take us to God. Because Messiah is worthy to stand in God's holy hill. Worthy to dwell in the presence of the Almighty. And by virtue of His resurrection, which proves that God accepted His sacrifice, He can bring us as a great boat into that presence as well. Christ is one. The one that Job longed for. The one that pleads with God for man. His people. As, God, as a man pleads for his friend and neighbor. As Peter said, the just... For the unjust that he might bring us to God. And what's the proof? Very simple. He rose up from the grave. And when Christ arose, he proved everything he ever claimed to be true. And it proved that God accepted his sacrifice. Is there such an one who meets these qualifications in Psalm 15? Is there one? Is there a Messiah? And if so... How will we know Him? There are people out here all the time that do good deeds on the surface and look righteous and moral on the surface, but there's skeletons in the closet. There's stuff going on that would shock us. So how can we know the Messiah? If there isn't one, as defined in Psalm 15, how can we know Him? Go to Psalm 16. How can we identify Him? For lack of time, I'm not going to read the whole psalm. Verse 10, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One 
to see corruption. Psalm 15, He that doeth these things shall never be moved. The last half of that last verse. If you want a commentary on it, you don't need to open up another book. Just go to the next psalm. There's your commentary. 15 is your commentary on the last verse of 14. 16 is your commentary on the last verse of 15. How do we identify the Messiah? I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but verses 2 and 3, we see that His goodness adds nothing to God because it's sourced completely in the Lord. And it benefits the saints, not Himself. That's a summation of the ministry of Christ. In fact, one guy came up to Christ and said, Good Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why are you calling me good? There's none good but God. So in other words, if you only see me as a teacher, don't call me good because there's none good but God. The Messiah's goodness didn't benefit Himself and it didn't add anything to God because He is God, but it benefits the saints in the earth. That's one way to identify Him. Verse 6, we're told that He has a goodly heritage. The line of the promised seed, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, That's an identifying mark. Verse 8, the Messiah always does the will of the Lord. He doesn't just memorize Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. He lives it in everything, in all His ways. He acknowledges God and God directs His paths. That's why Jesus didn't come preaching His own name like the Christian celebrities do and the TV preachers. He came preaching His Father's name. And he warned the Jews that one day one will come in his own name and you'll believe him as the Messiah. But you've rejected me. That's the man of sin, Antichrist. That's how you know him. He comes speaking his own name. That's how you ought to know a false teacher in the church. When they talk more about themselves than they talk about Jesus, we've got a problem. And then verses 9 and 10, how do we identify the Messiah? He raises up from the dead never to die again. That's the chief identifying mark. How do we know there's someone that meets the qualifications of Psalm 15 and can stand in the presence of God? Easy. He raises from the dead, never to die again. How do we know this psalm is declaring Messiah here? How do we know it's prophesying of a coming Messiah, of the seed of David? And how do we know it's not just David speaking about himself? In poetical language. That's easy. Turn to Acts chapter 2. You see, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, just like 15 is a commentary on the last verse of 14, 16 is a commentary on the last verse of 15, Acts chapter 2 is the Holy Spirit's New Testament commentary on Psalm 16. You see, the Holy Spirit can give us New Testament commentary on Old Testament prophecy if He wants to. He can tell us what He means because He's the author. And He's free to do so. We better be careful by assuming that role. But the Holy Spirit can give us commentary on what He's written and He can explain it for us. And He explains this psalm very clearly in Acts chapter 2. What we see here is Simon Peter, who was full of fear and doubt on Easter morning. When he ran to that tomb and peeked his head in and saw the clothes uh, lying on the tomb and the napkin folded neatly, he ran away in fear and doubt. John says he believed. 
But Peter was full of fear and doubt on Easter morning. He had denied the Lord three times. But it was he, after an encounter with the resurrected Christ, who preached the answer, the commentary to this psalm. On Pentecost, this was only 50 days after the resurrection. And it was only a mere 10 days after Jesus made his ascension back to the Father. And he did so in the presence of many witnesses, not behind the safety of a pulpit or before friends, like many pastors today who can talk bold behind a pulpit. But he did it in a public forum to a people who that not two months earlier had acclaimed, pridefully let his blood be on us and our children. That's where Peter preached this message. And this is what he has to say about Psalm 16, verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden by it. Or of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. This is a quote right out of Psalm 16. For he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Still quoting Psalm 16. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, now this is Peter preaching, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day, unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne. He seen this before spake of the resurrection of Christ. That's what David is prophesying right here in Psalm 16. That's how we can identify the Messiah. That his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, wherefore we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he that hath shed forth this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And that word Christ there in Greek is simply the Greek for the Hebrew Mashiach. This same Jesus who you crucified is Lord and Messiah. And the proof is that he rose from the dead. That word there in verse 34, David is not yet ascended. He wasn't speaking of himself as a prophet. He was speaking of the one whom would come of his sons from his loins. That word ascended there means to go up in one's own power. 
David didn't go up anywhere in his own power. It necessitates a bodily ascension, just like what happened 40 days after the resurrection. David didn't do that in his own power. Enoch was translated that he shouldn't see death, but that wasn't in his own power. God had translated him, Hebrews 11. Elijah went up to heaven without seeing death, but he was taken up by a whirlwind. And chariots of fire, he didn't go up in his own power. The body of Moses, Michael the archangel had to come get it and transport it for God's purposes. Satan failed to ascend up in his own power. He tried to ascend the mountain of God, Isaiah 14, and he failed. The men of Babel tried to go up in their own power and they failed. NASA's failed since 1958 to go up in its own power since, when it, since it was founded by Nazi scientists that Americans brought back to America so the Russians wouldn't get them. Wicked as hell. They tried to go up since 1958. They failed. Only the Messiah can go up in his own power and stand in the presence of God. Not Jesus of Nazareth. He ain't like NASA. He ain't like the men of Babel and Nimrod. He ain't like these fools trying to usher in a one world government. He ascended in his own power. And therefore, he is both Lord and Christ by the resurrection of the dead. After Jesus got up out of that grave, we learned through the gospel some interesting things that happened. No contradictions whatsoever. An amazing puzzle put together of that morning. Very early in the morning... Mary and the women went to the tomb and they discovered that the tomb was empty and the women were so affrighted, they left. Left Mary standing there. She's like, what in the heck's going on? She goes to get Peter and John. They come back. Peter's full of fear and doubt. John believes something's happened. And they run back. Mary's left there alone. Jesus appears to her. To whom he cast out seven devils. Standing before her, she thought he was a gardener. And then he opened her eyes and she went to embrace him. And he said, touch me not. I've not yet ascended to my father. So Mary, early that morning, wasn't allowed to touch him. Then we're told in Hebrews 9 that Jesus Christ ascended by his own power and went into that tabernacle that Psalm 15 speaks of and offered up himself a spotless sacrifice in the presence of God. Ephesians 4.8 said when he did that, he led captivity captive, emptied out paradise. That place Lazarus went at Abraham's bosom, empty today. Men had access to the presence of God by virtue of the resurrected Christ, leading captivity captive and giving gifts to men. Matthew 27 tells us that that day, that day of the resurrection, when when the veil was ripped in the temple, it said a lot of the graves in Jerusalem opened up. And then after Christ's resurrection that morning, there were saints of old that were seen walking around bodily in the city. Captivity captive. Then in Matthew 27, we have... uh, uh, I mean, in Matthew 28, a few hours later, we have those women that were at the tomb early that morning. They're running back to Bethany to say, hey, Jesus isn't there anymore. And as they're making their way over the Mount of Olives, Jesus shows up. And unlike Mary, they come and hug him on the feet and won't let go. And he doesn't stop them like he did Mary. Because in those morning hours, the Son of God got up from that grave and he ascended in his own power and he offered himself in the tabernacle, the holy hill of God, thereby 
granting His people access. Later in the day, Jesus appeared to those disciples on the road to Emmaus. And when their eyes were open, they ran all the way back to Jerusalem. That was a hike. And then that night, He appeared again to the disciples without Thomas. Many eyewitnesses declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Just like it said on that old sign there at the garden tomb. My friends, we are helpless without a Messiah. Psalm 14. Just like Buddha said, we're helpless. We are hopeless if there is no Messiah. Psalm 15. But David wasn't hopeless. After Psalm 14, he wrote Psalm 15. And after Psalm 15, he wrote Psalm 16. And after 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, David wasn't hopeless because there is a Messiah. The fruit of David's loins. Just like the prophet said, there's a Jewish Messiah of a goodly heritage. Just like the Scriptures foretold. A resurrected Messiah. An ascended Messiah who went up in His own power and offered Himself in the hill of God. In our stead. God manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Oh, how great and without controversy is the mystery of godliness. Psalm 15 in light of Psalm 14. Psalm 16 in light of Psalm 15. Jesus of Nazareth. He is not here. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And not just on Easter morning to a few people, a few close friends. He was seen by more than 500 eyewitnesses. Many who would later gladly pour out their lives unto the same types of violent deaths that Eric read about from Romania this morning. After they had forsook the Lord and fled the night of His arrest. These same people full of fear and doubt who boasted about their boldness and fled. John Mark fled naked that night, scared to death. Peter denied Christ and cursed and swore that he didn't know Christ. With Christ not even standing that far away. These same eyewitnesses who had an encounter with the resurrected Lord were more than willing to pour out their lives under the death as a testimony for what they knew to be true. Happy to do so. They didn't live as if they were men trying to stay alive. That is powerful proof. Easter morning alone, as I said, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, the women on the Mount of Olives, Simon Peter, the two en route to Emmaus, and all the apostles without Thomas. He appeared later to the apostles with Thomas. He appeared to more than 500 brethren gathered at once. And then there were many eyewitnesses that saw Him that day when He went back to the Father. This wasn't done in a corner. And that's why it turned the world upside down. Just a few preachers, a few cussing sailors... Had, a, had, a, had an encounter with the resurrected Messiah and they turned the world upside down. You know, there's talk of all this stuff. You know, we got revival and this and the promise keepers and we're raising young men and worshiping God and there's change coming to the land, the early and the latter rain and all this stuff. There were far fewer professing Christians in the wicked Roman Empire of the day than there are here in America. 
Rome crucified Christ in A.D. 30. And in A.D. 325, or A.D. 325, Christianity, Jesus Christ is declared the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now that later would come with its own problems. But that's the power of transformation when God pours out a work on his people. Far fewer Christians could affect that type of a change on the great, a great empire of old. And yet we think we're part of some big work because we go to church or we sing some worship songs. When God does a work through saints that preach the resurrected Jesus Christ, it changes empires. We're told in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus Christ showed himself alive for 40 days by many infallible proofs. That's a bigger picture to Easter morning right there. It wasn't just a few people that had a secret meeting. He showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. And the proof of that is when Peter preached, 3,000 men came to Christ. When Peter and John preached in the next chapter, 5,000. That's 8,000 people in the old city of Jerusalem. In fact, those, those early Jews came to Christ in such numbers that the archaeology reveals it even to this day and the Israeli government tries to cover it up. Many infallible proofs. And sadly, for most Christians... Now, we ain't got an evening service tonight. We're going to get out of here earlier than we normally do. So let me just preach for a while. It's Easter. For most professing Christians, guys, it's going to end here. I'm going to close the book. He is risen. He's risen indeed. We're going to pray and we're going to go home and we're going to go eat. That's what's going to happen in most churches this morning. Content with our knowledge of the resurrection. Some content to apply a little wisdom to our own fears and doubts. But very little discretion or real concern for a bigger picture and what we ought to do in these dark days after Easter Sunday as a result of it. Very little concern about those things. We've got to ask ourselves before we leave here, in light of man's problem, in light of Jesus Christ's righteousness and His raising from the dead, in light of the resurrection and what it grants us by grace through faith in the Messiah, what ought we to do? That's the bigger picture. That's the question we have to ask. What must we do? The answer is right there in the Psalms. After David reveals to us the problem of man through the Holy Spirit, our need for a Messiah, Psalm 15, and how to identify the Messiah in Psalm 16, keep on reading. David tells us exactly what to do. Exactly what... The fact of a risen Messiah ought to drive us. I liked what Eric said. I, don't even, I even had the word motivated in my notes. I'm not going to say it. It's a weak word. He's right. What it ought to compel us to do. Three simple things I want you to remember this morning. I've even alliterated them. Number, what must we do? Number one, we need to preach. Number two, we need to pray. And number three, we need to prepossess in light of Christ's resurrection our own resurrection. 
That little boy who was willing to die so his, in front of his daddy and implored his daddy not to be a traitor and a coward, he prepossessed his own resurrection. That's why he could die at a beating, to a beating at the hands of the communists, the same spirit that's behind our government today. Discretion looks at the resurrection of Christ and said, what must we do? We need to preach. David himself said in Psalm 116, I believe, therefore I have spoken. I believed, therefore I have spoken. In the New Testament, following the resurrection of Christ, he gives us a great commission. Not just Matthew 28, 19 and 20, but five times in the New Testament. Mark 16, that's our responsibility. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. God's problem is to save people and condemn them. Ours is the responsibility to preach. In Luke 24, we've got the message. It is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to raise up from the dead on the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations among whom ye are witnesses. We got to preach and we got to preach repentance. Salvation in a resurrected Messiah is not an offer of God. Just like motivation's a weak word, offer's a weak word. It's a command of God. Paul went out and preached and said, There's coming a day when God's going to judge this world in righteousness, and the proof is that He has ordained a resurrected Messiah to sit in judgment. Repent. We need to preach. And we need to preach the very message that Jesus said the Great Commission should include. Repentance and remission of sins. We have the badge of the authority of the Great Commission. Jesus told His disciples, as my Father sent me, so send I you. Receive the Holy Ghost. We've got a badge of authority to go and preach. We've got the Holy Ghost. And we're not, we're not preaching. The strategy of the Great Commission, Acts 1.8, is to start at home and go to the ends of the earth. The goal that well-known passage in Matthew 28, 19, 20 is to make disciples, plant churches, make disciples, bring people into a right relationship with the Word of God, baptize them, bring them into a right relationship with the church of God, and teach them. Bring them into a right relationship with the Word of God. Uh, Making disciples is in the right relationship with the Christ of God, the Messiah of God. That's what we're commanded to do. And all of that involves preaching. But what ought to drive us to preach? You know, the most important element of the Great Commission is always left out. It's not Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It's Matthew 28, 18. Nobody ever reads that or memorizes that. Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He stood there resurrected. And by virtue of His resurrection, all power had been delegated to Him in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. We never even stopped to consider what the therefore is therefore. The resurrected Messiah whom we claim to serve has all power. Therefore, we ought to go and preach without fear. The resurrection ought to drive us to preach as it did the early disciples. Acts 2. It drove Peter to preach who was before afraid and was suddenly very bold. 3,000 souls were baptized. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John who kept their distance when Christ was arrested 
yet driven by the resurrected Lord to preach. And these weren't exactly safe spaces where they preached. They were dangerous places for followers of Christ. And then we had that verse that Eric highlighted this morning. It's a powerful verse. It's funny. I had looked at it myself in this message. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Witnesses proclaim. Witnesses bear witness. Witnesses preach. If we're going to confess the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, we need to go preach Him. We need to preach Him. We need to bear witness to Him. We also need to pray. The resurrection of Christ ought to drive us to pray and to intercess for our brethren, for our nation. After all, isn't that Jesus' resurrection ministry in this church age? He makes intercession for us, it says there in Romans and in Hebrews. He makes intercession. That is His ministry today as a resurrected Messiah. Shouldn't we model that? We're told in Hebrews chapter 4 that we have a high priest, not like the high priest of men who is burdened with our infirmities. It says that He is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Therefore, or let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because we have a resurrected Messiah passed into the heavens... Let us therefore not only go and preach, but come boldly into the throne of grace. The resurrection ought to compel us to pray. To come to God boldly because we can. Because of Jesus we have access to God. We need to use it. Boldness and access. Ephesians says, with confidence. We don't have to tiptoe to come to God. Because Jesus rose from the dead and intercesses for us. It's interesting, in 1 Timothy, Paul, in view of the glorious gospel of the blessed God, chapter 1, verse 11, and in view of the Messiah who came to save sinners, chapter 1, verse 15, says in the first verse of chapter 2 to Timothy, he says this, in view of these truths that are tied to the, uh, the resurrection, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority. In the context of a resurrected Messiah, we're to be a praying people. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks. And it's interesting that David in his psalms and the way God has collected them through the Holy Spirit and his preservation. After 16, where we learn how to identify the Messiah, we immediately go into a string of five psalms that very strangely follows the exact pattern that Paul sets here. In fact, when I start reading 17 and go to 18, 19, 20, and 21, what I see here is the very order. If you want to know what these, what, what, what these different words for prayer mean and what these different types of prayer are, 
that Paul exhorts us to, then just go read Psalm 17 through 21. In Psalm 17, we have a supplication made. In Psalm 18, we have a very important part of a supplication. Remembering when God answers our supplications. In Psalm 19, we have what's called a prayer. In Psalm 20, we have an intercession. In Psalm 21, a giving of thanks. I just find it amazing that after we learn how to identify the Messiah, we're told how to pray in the Psalms. You don't see that unless you zoom out and turn on that ultra-wide mode. And that's exactly what Paul tells us to do here in view of the resurrection. You know what's interesting? We're called to make intercession. Intercession for each other. Intercession for our neighbor. Intercession for our nation. But please understand there's two types of intercession. Intercession is praying on behalf of someone else. There's intercession for someone, like what Christ does for us, as it says there in Romans. But there's also intercession against what Elijah did. He intercessed against the wicked government of Israel. Romans chapter 11. So as we intercess and pray for kings and for all that are in authority, remember that can be for or against. We need to pray and intercess by the power and the testimony of the resurrected Lord against this rabble running our country. We need to pray and intercess against them that God would unleash angels of death and turn them upside down like a dish that men might fear Him and come to Christ. And when you pray that God would unleash angels... Consider what one angel can do. One angel went out into the camp of the Assyrians in response to the intercession of Hezekiah and killed 180,000 men. We need to make intercession against our wicked nation before the throne of God boldly and with confidence by a resurrected Messiah. The resurrection, Easter ought to compel us to do that. Make intercession for those little babies that are chopped up in this country and those little children that are groomed and trafficked and molested and raped and ravaged. It were better for Mickey Mouse to have a millstone tied around his neck and him dumped in the sea than for him to keep on doing what he's doing with these children. Intercession, the resurrection ought to drive us to pray. Are we a praying people? Are we a preaching people? If not, can it be said that we view the resurrection with discretion? The last thing, and I'm sorry for running long, is we need to prepossess our own resurrection. It's interesting when you go from the Psalms about prayer in 17 through 21, we actually see a picture of the mediation ministry of the Messiah after we're told how to identify Him. The next five psalms show us a picture of his mediation ministry. And then Psalm 22, 23, and 24 show us his ministry itself. His mediation we see through the types of prayer and his ministry itself. Psalm 22, he's a sacrifice. Psalm 23, he's a shepherd. Psalm 24, he's the king of glory. It's not one or the other. It's all. So it's amazing to look at the psalms with a panoramic lens and to see them with discretion. We need to prepossess our own resurrection just like David does in Psalm 49. 
Psalm 49 is payday preaching for evil times. And he wasn't afraid to preach it because he prepossessed his own resurrection. Real quickly, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. For our conversation is in heaven. Paul speaking in the present tense to living believers. For our conversation is in heaven. Conversation doesn't mean just speech. It means the way you conduct your life. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereof He is able to subdue all things unto Himself. That verb there, to look for. Our conversation ought to be in heaven with Christ who stands there on our behalf even today. So much so that we look for. That word there is a strong compound word in the original language that means to focus at the expense of setting other things aside. In other words, to look for so intently that other things are blurred. Are we looking for the resurrection of our bodies? Are we looking for the coming of the king so much that the claptrap in the media becomes blurry? That ought, to be, that ought to be the way we maintain our focus because one day our vile bodies are going to be raised in the same manner that the Lord Jesus was raised. When that rapture horn sounds, that trumpet, I kind of wonder, will my, fold, my clothes be just kind of lying there on the side of the road as I walk down with my cross, if the trumpet sounds a couple weeks from now? Will my clothes be lying there? And will my jacket or my vest or whatever and my shoes be folded up nicely? Because that's the way it was when Peter saw inside the tomb. And the Bible says that we're going to be raised just like him. Jesus went through walls. He ate and drank. One day we're going to be raised in the likenesses of His resurrection. We, why, why, are we going to live like that? Why are we afraid? We need to prepossess our own resurrection. Looking for it such that other things are set aside. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. But the church does the opposite with regard to Christ's coming and our own resurrection. We ought to be looking for it and preaching it and seeking it, but we do the opposite. The greatest theme in the Bible is not the crucifixion of Christ. It's not even the resurrection of Christ. The greatest theme in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation over and over and over and over again is the coming kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, the judgment, His return. All of these things guaranteed by the resurrection. That's the greatest theme. And yet that's what we talk about least in the churches. The resurrection ought to compel us to talk about the coming of Christ. And what we have to look forward to. And that all of these evils that vex our spirit. Like Lot was vexed in Sodom. Will one day be made right. And we can have confidence in that. Paul preached the coming of Christ. As the, as the outpouring of his resurrection. He never separated the two. Read Acts 17. How do we prepossess our own resurrection? 
It's very simple. We need to change our focus. We need to take our focus off of what everybody's doing wrong so much. And we need to take our focus off of all this fear and health and safety and all these, this claptrap on the TV. And we need to zero in on the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ that He's coming back and we're going to be raised in the likeness of His resurrection. Get to thinking about that and you watch fear fly out the window. Just like it did for that little boy who was beaten to death. We need to change our focus. We need to quit beating around the bush and we need to be plain, straightforward, honest men. I made reference to Dietrich Bonhoeffer a little while ago. I want to read a quote by him real quick. It's not very long, if I can find it. I thought I had it in here. Oh, here we go. This is something he said in speaking to his fellow Germans during the Nazi Reich, the Third Reich. He said, We have been silent witnesses of evil deeds. Notice he says we. We have been drenched by many storms. We have learnt the arts of equivocation and pretense. Experience has made us suspicious of others and kept us from being truthful and open. Intolerable conflicts have worn us down and have even made us cynical. Man, that could be somebody talking about us right here in America today. Are we still of any use? I ask myself that. Am I of any use to the Lord? We're so encumbered and stained by the spirit of Laodicea in this country. And even here, if we're honest with ourselves, there's a lot of things that are done right here. But are we of any use? Bonhoeffer goes on to say, We shall not need geniuses or cynics or misanthropies or clever tacticians, but rather plain, honest, straightforward men. Will our inward power of resistance be strong enough and our honesty with ourselves remorseless enough for us to find our way back to simplicity and straightforwardness? That's what we need more than anything is simplicity and straightforwardness in our witness. And if we'll change our focus and prepossess our own resurrection because of Christ, then we'll find those things much easier than they are today. We don't only need to change our focus, we need to stop standing around. In Acts chapter 1 verse 11, Men of Galilee, why are you standing around? This same Jesus who was taken up from among you is going to come back in like manner. We're going, if we're going to prepossess our own resurrection in these evil days, we need to stop standing around like those men of Galilee. Because that same Jesus who rose from the grave is coming back. And boy, is he angry. He's coming back. And he's going to change our vile bodies. And to him that overcometh will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. It's time to stop standing around. We need to quit living in fear. That's what it is to prepossess our own resurrection. Quit living in fear. Romans 4, 24 and 25, we are told that Christ Jesus was raised for our justification. The crucifixion without the resurrection is nothing. 
The resurrection without the crucifixion is nothing. But it's by the resurrection that we are justified before God. God can be just and the justifier of those that believe in Jesus. And by our faith in Messiah, we are justified before God. So why do we care what men think? Who is he that condemneth? It's God that justifies. If we're justified with God by Christ, why are we afraid of men? We need to quit living in fear. We've got to cease clinging to this world. Cease clinging to this world. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says that by the resurrection, we have been begotten unto a lively hope, to an inheritance incorruptible. Yet we cling to the things of this world. And we think if we'll just vote Republicans, it'll all be fixed. That's not prepossessing our own resurrection. We need to cease clinging to this world, friends. I'll tell you what else we need to do. Not only do we need to change our focus, stop standing around, stop living in fear, and cease clinging to this world, we need to live our eternal life now. That's what it is to prepossess our own resurrection, is to live our eternal life now. Ephesians 2, 5, and 6 says... Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is Paul's testimony of what it is to be in Christ. And he speaks of future things in the present tense. It's the futuristic use of the presence. In other words, the things of which he speaks are so certain that we can speak of them as already being now. Already now we have been quickened with Christ. Already now we have been raised up together and already now we are sitting in heavenly places. Our eternal life is now. If we've received that resurrected Lord, if we've confessed Him with our mouth and believed in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, the Bible says thou shalt be saved. And if you're saved, you have eternal life now. It isn't something in the future. It isn't something that waits until you die. Death is just a passing. People that die without Christ aren't passing away. We like to use that word in our society because it, it, it sugarcoats death. You aren't passing if you're without Christ. You're descending into hell. And to God's county jail to await judgment. But if you're in Christ, you have eternal life now. And just like old Stonewall, old Stonewall Jackson, laying in that bed at Guinea Station, Virginia, last words, let us cross over the river, rest under the shade of the trees. We have eternal life now in Christ. Let's live like it and not as cowards. Tell you what we also need to do. If you want to prepossess your own resurrection, we need to be people that repent. We need to be people that repent. 1 John chapter 3. I'm sorry I'm running a little long, but this is the message God laid on my heart and I want to preach it. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We will be like Him when we are raised with our resurrection bodies. Now, here's the, the most important part, verse 3. Back to the here and now. And every man that has this hope, if we, do we have this hope? Do we have this hope of a resurrection because of a resurrected Lord? Okay, if we do, this is what we do. 
Every man that has this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. This hope purifies. That means the righteousness that we are declared to have or justified to have by Christ's resurrection, we ought to be striving to model, allowing the Holy Spirit to sanctify us and set apart us and conform us unto the righteousness of the one who died and rose again. By the resurrection of the Messiah, God commands even the churches to repent. Go read Revelation 2 and 3. Ephesus, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, repent. Part of prepossessing our own resurrection is repenting and stop. We need to stop making excuses for our flesh. The proof that I repented and put my faith in Christ long ago, July 21st, 1993, is that I stand before you today confessing that Jesus Christ only merit my soul and living repentance and faith in Him today. That's the proof. We need to stop making excuses for our flesh. Romans 6 5 through 14, I encourage you to go read that. I'm not going to take time to do it now. But we are raised, just like we are baptized into His death, we are raised in the likeness of His resurrection. Therefore, we need to reckon ourselves dead to sin and yield ourselves as instruments of righteousness. Translation, you're not a victim. Stop making excuses for the flesh. That's what we need to do in this church. That's what the churches need to do. That's what Christians need to do if they truly prepossess their resurrection. That's guaranteed by the resurrection of our Lord. We don't only need to preach. We need to pray. We need to prepossess. What does that mean? It means we're going to change our focus. We're going to keep it on the resurrection Lord before and after Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday ought to be no real difference in terms of our focus. We need to stop standing around. We need to quit living in fear. Cease clinging to this world. Live our eternal life now. Repent. Stop making excuses for our flesh. And last of all, for God's sake, for Christ's sake. Prepossess your own resurrection and be satisfied for God's sake. Be satisfied. We're such an unsatisfied and ungrateful people in this country. We have a little bit of heartache and it's all this drama. For God's sake, prepossess your own resurrection and be satisfied. Be satisfied. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Be satisfied. Now, I find it very interesting... I looked at Psalm 14, 15, and 16. I made partial reference to 17, 18, 19, 21, 22, 23, and 24. But when I talk about being satisfied, I'm going to go back to Psalms. Because if you flip over from Psalm 16 to verse 17, there's a very interesting verse here at the end that talks about being satisfied. And what makes it particularly interesting is not... David's declaration of it, but what it meant to someone all 
centuries later, who truly prepossessed his resurrection in his last moments on earth. Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. The psalmist who knew that man had a problem, who knew that God's standard of righteousness was unattainable and that we needed a Messiah and who knew how to identify that Messiah by the resurrection of the dead could say he could behold the face of God in righteousness and be satisfied with thy likeness. Isn't that exactly what we have in Christ? That verse, those were the last words of a man who prepossessed his own resurrection. September 30th, 1770, Newburyport, Massachusetts. That old preacher who had traveled back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean time and time again and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and resurrected the Lord up and down the American colonies time and time again fell sick and died. His name was George Whitfield. And they say right before he uttered his last breath, he repeated this verse several times. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I wake with thy likeness. And then he sighed. I shall be satisfied. And then there was a pause. His last word, satisfied. And then he passed away. Those were George Whitfield's last words. He died broken, tired, sick, and weak from all the traveling and all the preaching. But he died satisfied. Because he prepossessed his own resurrection. And George Whitfield was a preaching preacher. He was a praying preacher and he was a prepossessing preacher. I've gone out and preached in the streets and I've had insults thrown at me. I've had people cuss at me. I've had people spit on me. I've had beer thrown on me. But I've never had a dead cat thrown at me like Whitfield did. Never had a guy come up with a trumpet and blow it as loud as he could right in my ear just like Whitfield did. And yet he died satisfied. So Psalm 17, 15, those were the last words of George Whitfield. Remember that. We too can be satisfied because of what Christ has done. He is not here. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And with a little discretion, that can mean more to us. That can effect more of us than an Easter service. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're very grateful for your word, for the wellspring it is of wisdom and of power. Lord, that we can look at it through a regular lens. We could zoom out and look at it in its greater context, or we can zoom in and look at it line by line, verse by verse, here a little, there a little. And there's so much great truth. Over and over again, a consistent message. Lord, we have a problem. Who can stand in your presence? Only one who is truly righteous in fault, word, and deed. Jesus Christ was righteous by his active obedience. Oh, how we need a Messiah. There is a Messiah. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can know him because he rose from the dead. And we celebrate that this morning, oh God. Father, I pray that in light of this great truth, 
that we would be like those apostles of old. We'd be like Whitfield and others throughout the centuries who with that knowledge, who with that wisdom, who with that discretion went out and preached with power as faithful witnesses, prayed with power as intercessors, modeled after the intercessor himself who lives ever now to make intercession for us, boldly entering into God's throne room and finding grace to help in time of need, and also who prepossessed their own re resurrection, didn't try to cling to this life, didn't try to cling to this body and the things of this world, but live their eternal lives now. May we be like that in these dark days. Speak truth, contemn the vile, and honor those that honor the Lord. Confess Jesus Christ and never move. Never move from that rock, that, that house built on a foundation of rock. Lord, we give you glory and praise and honor. And unto Him who is risen from the dead and who is able to keep us from falling, to the only wise God, our Savior, be honor and glory, majesty and power, dominion also, both now and forever. Amen.